Awesome. Okay. Well, okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Emerson Murray, and he just wrote a really fascinating book. I love reading through it. I'm from Northern California. I know the area that he writes about. The title of his book is Murder Capital of the World. The Santa Cruz community looks back at the John Lindley Frazier, Herbert Mullen, and Edmund Kemper murder sprees of the early 1970s. It has 12 five-star ratings right now on Amazon. And this is Emerson Murray's second book. His first book was titled Bruiser Brody, and it's a primary source biography published by Crowbar Press. Emerson has written articles. He paints and makes cassettes and CDs. He grew up in the San Lorenzo Valley and still lives in Santa Cruz County, where a lot of this takes place, with his wife, two kids, and two dogs. You can visit his website, which is his full name, emersonmurray.com. And a, another one for this book is the title of the book, which is Murder Capital of the World Altogether.com. You can hear, listen about uh, this very fascinating, very well written book. So, Emerson uh, Murray, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Yeah, thank you very much, William, for having me. I really appreciate it. Can you kind of talk about your background? I know the locale is very important to this book, where you are and your father, and then what led you to put together this really fascinating book, Murder Capital of the World. Yeah, so as, as some of your guests may know or may not know, um, Santa Cruz, uh, California, in the, in the early 1970s, we um, uh, sort of experienced or lived through the, the horror of having uh, John Lindley Frazier, a mass murder, commit a, a horrible uh, series of crimes here, and as well as having two serial killers, um, Edmund Kemper and Herbert Mullen, um, basically uh, have our, our community as hunting grounds. And uh, I was born in 1973. My, my parents were in the area. I was born in the area in Santa Cruz, uh, in the San Lorenzo Valley. Um, my dad knew uh, one of the victims of Herbert Mullen. It was, um, yeah, he was killed, uh, a man named Jim Genera. Jim was, was murdered um, before I was born, just two months before I was born. And um, so it was something uh, in my life, and I think many, many people in Santa Cruz, um, my age, just growing up sort of in the shadow of this uh, tragedy, this series of tragedies um, in our community. So, I mean, there's, there's the impacts of these crimes really are still being felt today. Uh, Herbert Mullen killed 13 people. He, he thought that he was um, going to save California from a cataclysmic cataclysmic earthquake obviously he had mental health conditions um and he thought that you know sort of the aztecs had it right and that by human sacrifice he could he could prevent he could uh, prevent natural disasters and the way he phrased it was you know you'd, you'd have a smaller disaster murder uh, it would uh, prevent a larger natural disaster and edmund kemper at that time he uh was murdering uh, co-eds college students and and high school student um at that time, and he um, killed them, and then ultimately killed his mother and one of her friends, and and then turned himself in. And then, as I said earlier, John Lindley Frazier, before Kemper and Mullen in 1970, killed a local eye surgeon, a very prominent eye surgeon named Dr. Victor Oda, and his family, and one of his employees slash friends named uh, Dorothy Codwallader. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the background of the book. For, for me personally, um, like I said, we sort of grew up in the shadow of this. Um, we always knew the name Herbert Mullen. It was my dad always had a picture on the wall. I've said this 
before and it's in the book of himself and Jim hiking and, and they were buddies together. They, they lived in a commune together, um, sort of the hippie lifestyle there. And um, so we just knew, we knew what had happened. It was never explained to us. I can never, I can't remember when I first heard the name Herbert Mullen. It was just always, always there sort of in, in our life. And I can remember my brother and our neighbors um, out under the streetlight talking about Herbert Mullen, you know, it's a very young age in elementary school. Uh, we, we logically knew that he was um, in prison, but we would still make up stories. You know, he was like our boogeyman. He scared the heck out of us and um, was, you know, we'd make up other horrible stories and, and things like that. And um, similar with Frazier and Kemper, you know, you just, those names were always around and they're still around, you know, I mean, some of the younger people don't, don't, may, may not know the names, but um, I could go like into Knob Hill or Safeway or no grocery store and just say the names and people will start talking about it. And people have recognized me and, and mentioned something and then other people join in or, it's just, um, it's everywhere. Everybody here seemingly has some sort of connection to these crimes. They were just so big and so many murders in our small community. They were horrible crimes too, like the worst of the worst family murders. And can you kind of talk about uh, Santa Cruz at that time in that area and kind of the social movement? You talk about the difference between the short hairs and the long hairs, but I think the drug culture and a lot of that, that's a very important background for how these crimes took place. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, Santa Cruz had been a retirement community for many, many years. It was sort of a laid back and it still sort of has that reputation, you know, just this laid back kind of surfer community. At that time, you know, the population was older. Um, and then in the late or in the mid 1960s, uh, UC Santa Cruz, the university uh, opened up in Santa Cruz and that brought in a flood of of young people and and just a new sort of face, you know, an overlay on Santa Cruz, new culture brought in. At the same time, there were some changes in, in welfare laws where you didn't necessarily need to live where you were getting your welfare check. So um, a lot of uh, hippies and like you said, long hairs started coming into Santa Cruz. The drug culture was, was changing things and was opening up things. Youth culture, women's movements were happening, you know, with the university, all of those things sort of came together. So. I mean, Santa Cruz was sort of a tense place at that time, you know, even before these, these murders occurred in the late 1960s, where these different cultures were, were hitting it, were up against each other. Um, uh, they actually had a report done the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors to say, you know, hey, what, we have this problem. They called it the Utes. Uh, that's an acronym for uh, undesirable transient elements is what they called them. And they were saying, you know, we have this homeless or, or whatever, transient people here, who are they? Find out. They had So they had a study done and the study came back with a couple of interesting findings. One is that Santa Cruz was unique in California where they had this really large population of older and elderly people and this really large population of, of youth and not so much in the middle. And that was create, part of the reason for these tensions. The other thing that came back and the Board of Supervisors wasn't happy about this, but they came out with this um, the finding that, well, all these hippies and these long hairs, most of them are your kids. <laughs> they're they're <laughs> locals. <laughs> they're they're your kids. They're of you. So, and and they're the ones that are just dealing um, pot and smoking pot and, and some LSD. The ones that are doing the hard drugs, they look more like the board of supervisors in suits and ties and, and things like that. So, 
it, the, it didn't go over very well and kind of got, I think it got swept under the rug a little bit, but uh, it just goes to show, you know, the pressure here was, was immense. And when these murders started, especially the, the John Lindley Frazier crimes, because he sort of identified as a hippie, the hippie community was not supportive of him really, but uh, he identified as a hippie and, and his ideas, he had mental health issues as well, but he had sort of these ideas that he was going to to, to rally, you know, the, the Oda family by building this large, they had this beautiful home up on the hill um, near where he lived, um, that they were destroying nature and he was going to have them destroy their own house and then they were going to caravan to the next, you know, m large house or mansion or whatever. And, and then that, that owner would burn his own house and then they would caravan on. He just had these wild ideas um, and it didn't pan out that way. Dr. Oda, you know, fought for his family and fought for his life. And they all, you know, they, they paid. He was bad. like, a, he really carried out some kind of ecological attack, thinking that he yeah. was going to, he had some kind of weird idea, but that's drugs. I think he was taking, one of them was taking mescaline, a lot of mescaline too, right? Yeah. Both, both he, yeah, he and Mullen, yeah, were very um, into drugs and LSD and yeah, he did do mescaline. He, you know, there were stories of, of him. He had been talking for a while about this revolution and they were going to get the pigs and the rednecks. And that's, we use those terms a little differently now today, but um, that's what he called sort of these uh, wealthy people. And, um, and they were going to pay for what they had done to the environment. I mean, the sick part of it is, is the Otis, they, they constructed that house with a, a prominent architect that, that named Aaron Green that worked with them to not cut down any trees to build the house around um, the natural environment i mean it's just a beautiful home i've, I've been up there and and that was you know he didn't he couldn't even recognize that he was so deluded so um yeah but drugs paid it played a really really large uh, part in it for him and, and as well for herbert mullen um uh, he yeah, lived, i got yeah i got the sense like that that era too these words yeah. pig and the bad guy, but the Otis yeah. didn't quite fit into it. They were kind of a multiracial. He was a self-made man, yeah. eye surgeon. So he, yeah. he, there were, the ideation behind it just didn't really apply to that guy and his family. In my opinion. Right. You know, and I, maybe from a distance, you know, Frazier's looking through binoculars at this house and Oda, Dr. Oda, um, I talked to his daughter, Lark Oda, and she's, she's, um, you know, she survived. She was not living at the house at the time that that uh, mass murder took place. Um, Frazier did kill. He killed Dr. Oda. He killed his, Dr. Oda's wife and their two sons, their two young sons, as well as, like I said before, his secretary, Dorothy Codwallader. But they had two daughters who were not living at home at, at the time. And I've talked to Lark Oda since then. And she said that um, it. her father was starting to get sort of audacious. And he was... The word that was the word she used for the cars that he would drive. He started to buy these sports cars that were audacious because he was proud. Like you said, he was a self-made man. He he learned to be a surgeon in the military, um, uh, and but he had his timing was sort of off, is how she phrased it. Where he felt, you know, I had worked from the ground up. I had worked from nothing um, to get this lifestyle. And I'm, you know, going to live it. I'm going to enjoy it. Well, at, at the time, like you said, you know, they were using the word pig. It was being used. And the society had sort of shifted. And he became the man, 
you know, and that was not a good thing anymore to be uh, a self-made wealthy man. You know, it's just, um, yeah, he was not in tune, I guess, culturally uh, with society, especially in Santa Cruz, where that just wasn't, I, I imagine, was not seen as a great thing at the end of the 60s. You know? And I don't know what the population is now, but I think back then it really had much more of a rural feel in the 70s. Right now, it's like super expensive. I think everything yeah. else in Northern Cal, but I think it was still kind of affordable and uh, just a much different difference. Like it really had kind of a beach town kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it was. And um, everything, you know, the university was very cheap. It was just a, a cheap town. And then, you know, there's pockets in the San Lorenzo Valley where, where I'm from and where Mullen is from. Um, you know, it's very, it is, it's very rural. You're out in the woods. Peter Chang, who was the district attorney at, at that time, and he tried all, all three of those cases. He has a great quote in the book um, where he talks about, he says, Santa Cruz is, is sort of unique in that you can be in a downtown environment surrounded by people and in three to five minutes you can be in the middle of a forest and no one can hear you no one's around so it was one of the reasons that he felt was these types of crimes were were being committed at that time it was just something he was speculating on and you that's where you got the title of the book right is from this character yeah peter chang. yeah peter chang yeah so after herbert mullen had killed these these four boys that were camping illegally in henry cal park or near henry cal park state park out in the forest uh mullen had been camping himself near there and been caught and arrested and a couple months later he found um these boys out there camping and he went and talked to him and said you're not allowed to camp out here and he was just jealous and that he went back again he murdered the four boys. Well, the next day, Peter Chang had a press conference and a, and a reporter from the San Francisco Examiner said, well, you know, Mr. Chang, it sure looks like, you know, Santa Cruz uh, is the murder capital of the world. And Peter Chang said something like, yeah, I suppose we are the murder capital of the world right now. And that name just stuck. It's always stuck. I, um, our, our county supervisor, Pat Lickey at the time, he couldn't stand it. And he, uh, there's uh, records of, in speeches where he's saying, oh, who came up with this stupid name and this terrible thing? And, you know, they were they were afraid it was going to kill tourism and we would depend on that with the boardwalk and everything. So um, it, uh, but it stuck and it still sticks. And I, I had no doubt I, that's what I was going to name the book. And I was shocked that that title had not been used before. So um, yeah. It was interesting. Can you talk about Peter Chang? Because he's an interesting character in this whole story, too. He's a yeah. unique person. Yeah, Peter Chang is, is wild. I, he, he really interests me. I thought, gosh, if, if we could ever get a movie made from this book, he would be a great central character, you know. So he was he was Korean. Um, he was the first Korean district attorney uh, in the United States. Uh, his father was like a submarine captain in World War II for the United States, you know, with the United States and the United States Navy. Um, uh, he, uh, came from, um, uh, near Monterey, Monterey County. He was an uh, assistant district attorney over there. He came over here and was real tough on crime. And, and he ran against a man named Richard Pease who, who had had some troubles. Uh, he won in a landslide. Um, everyone that I talked to, everyone that I interviewed eventually came around and mentioned, uh, Peter Ching's drinking. So, it was, and he mentioned it himself in articles and interviews um, that it had really damaged his life, and he lost his family and his practice because of it. But, but even you know, before he he lost all that, while he was district attorney, um, uh, he he drank an awful lot, and had sort sort of something he was known for. Um, 
But in the courtroom, brilliant by all accounts, an absolutely brilliant, aggressive uh, person, open outside the courtroom. You know, I talked to the investigator who, uh, Harold Cartwright, who was an investigator with the public defender's office at that time. And he said, oh, yeah, you could walk into Peter's office and they would share files with you and they <laughs> would talk to you about cases beforehand. But, you know, once you got in the courtroom, it was, you know, all bets were off. So he was he came from a legitimate background. He had a Stanford degree. So mm -hmm. I think he lived in Atherton. So Atherton, kind of yeah, really yeah, remarkable yeah. Guy, yeah, 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 really neat. Uh, yeah. But a hard drinker. I think I followed his the rest of his story. So he was working while drinking during all this stuff. I'm sure the stress yeah. was off the charts. And then he was one of the types who would wait for the bar to open at 7 a.m. Right, right. He was exactly. a day drinker, yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah a shame, exactly. Man. He would work at night, you know, and the, they had built a new county. They call it the county building here, and it's really the county sort of government building. And he would work at night, and people used to say um, that they could see the one light on in the window. He had a corner office over there and strangely enough right across the street from the county building is a bar called the jury room and the jury room was sort of a, a was known as a um where the law enforcement you know off-duty police officers and deputies would go in and unwind but uh in their midst they didn't know it at the time and this is sort of a known story uh, edmund kemper the serial killer was also drinking at that bar it was a bar that he hung out at um, I actually found an interview, which I don't think had been seen before or read before, uh, where Edmund Kemper talked about um, he had a rifle with a scope and he would have it in the trunk of his car and he'd park at the jury room and he could see Peter Chang over there working. And he thought about, uh, you know, lining up his sight and taking a shot at Peter Chang. I mean, he would never do something like that, but he said he, he thought about it. Kemper was a drinker, too. So you yeah. mentioned that in your book. Like he yeah, was... Yeah blitzed all the time like it's sort of a thing. yeah it's sort of a triangle there's a gas station kitty corner and he worked at the gas station and he'd come over to the bar and peter chang worked across the street he'd come over to the bar and it, you know it was just a it's such a small community i have to say that i've sort of um it sounds strange but i sort of haunted myself now after writing this book there's i drive around with my wife and my kids and i'm saying oh there's where kemper met his friend after he killed his mom oh there's where you know and it's just it's sort of weird but, it's just put this filter over the whole but that was something that distinguished kemper is that before he got caught or turned himself in right he was he injected himself kind of into the cop talk right yeah, into the investigation. He said he called himself sort of a friendly nuisance. And it took me a while, a, a couple of interviews before I got one of the um, deputy sheriffs to say, oh, yes, I actually did drink with Kemper and I hung out with him. I didn't know him. And he, yes, he was a friendly nuisance, but I, I sort of liked him because I could beat him at arm wrestling. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, Kemper's six foot nine. So, you know, it was sort of sort of funny. It's amazing. I mean, there's all kinds of amazing stories in this book that I didn't know. Like Kemper ends up with Mullen in jail, mm -hmm. shipped to Redwood City or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Why did they feel like they had to? Was there not the facilities in Santa Cruz to keep those guys? I didn't understand why they shipped them to the Bay Area. Yeah. And I, I heard uh, it's, you know, so my book is a book told in quotes. You know, it, it it's um, uh, I call it like a first person history. Um, and so you can, I can tell the story of why they were shipped over there and you hear different people, different people's points of view, you know, the, um, prosecution would say, 
that, oh, you know, we'll take Kemper as an example. Kemper was shipped over there because he tried to commit suicide twice in the cell, you know, in his cell in Santa Cruz, and, and he was bleeding everywhere. And, and so they thought, oh, well, that'll be safer over there. Well, he tried to kill himself, I think, in Redwood City, too. I, I can't remember if it was two or three times. But, um, well, you talk to the um, defense attorneys, and the defense attorneys are, uh, you know, the public defender's office. They're saying, no, they're, they want to ship him over there because in the visiting room, uh, they're wired up to record sound. And in the Frazier trial, they had record, recorded Frazier talking to his friends. So he's over here telling one story. And then they record him in the cell or in the visiting room at the jail talking to his friends. And it was admitted into court, which every, to everyone's surprise. So the defense is saying, yeah, all of the big hitters are going to, you know, big crimes are going to be end up in Redwood City because they can record in the visiting room. Yes. You know, so it, it's a. It depends on who you believe. There's a variety of stories of, of why they were interesting. Over there. But yeah. it is interesting. They put that Mullen is. and Kemper right next to each other in the jail cell, <laughs> and Kemper's teasing him and being a jerk. Like he seems to have that yeah. kind of personality. Or Trying to manipulate, yeah, Mullen with yeah. peanuts and all the stuff. And Mullen is over here singing and annoying everyone and, and all that stuff. Acting psychotic. I, I mean, I asked Mullen, Mullen about that because I've been in contact with him, writing letters back and forth. Um, I just send him a series of questions. He answers. And then he asked me questions about what's going on in Santa Cruz now. And I thought, I, you know, I made it clear. Like, we're not friends, but hey, I'll answer any questions you have about Santa Cruz if you answer my questions. So, um, so he's done that. And I asked him about that. I said, you know, I hear all these stories about you singing and being, you know, really annoying while you were in the jail and Kemper manipulating you. And, and he said, um, whoever told you those stories is exaggerating. They're just trying to get publicity. And I, I didn't tell him that it was Kemper himself that, that, that told those stories. So it's sort of interesting, you know, it's all, but it is interesting, like in your communication with Mullen, he seems to have become less crazy. Is that do you get that well, sensibility in being in jail? Uh, that's very interesting that you say that. He he contends that uh, he, yes, he had uh, schizophrenia, uh, differentiated. I can't remember exactly what he says. Differentiated paranoid schizophrenia, something like that. He says that he cured himself and that he's fine now. Um, but at his last parole hearing, which was just last year, I think it was, um, the findings of the analysts that reviewed him said that he is actually worse now than he was before because he believes uh, these delusions that his family is somehow responsible for the murders, for forcing him to commit the murders. Um, even strong, his feelings are even stronger now than they were back then. And because he's believed these feelings so long, they determined that he's more of a danger now uh, than he, than even before. So I, I don't, you know, what, whatever those fine, I'm sure they're loaded with, you know, things that I don't even understand, but um, that, that was what they said at the parole hearing. So, uh, so it was interesting that you would say, you would ask that because, by his accounts, most certainly, yeah. Oh, I'm fine. I'm I've cured myself, and I'm ready. And he wants to come out and start over and move right back into San Lorenzo Valley and wow. pick up where he started, and wow. you know, perhaps have an offspring or something. I forgot how he phrased it, but um, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. He comes across in those writings in your interview very 
very lucid. So it's it's uh, yeah. mind is like really crazy things. And he killed those families at a camping trip by the mystery spot, which I think is still there, right? It's still up in the hills. The mystery spot is still here. Yep, yep. We went up not that long ago. Every once in a while, when we have a a visitor from out of town, we bring him up there, and it's sort of a weird spot. There's a gate there, so you can't get up, get up to that community that lives beyond the mystery spot. But yeah, that was the Francis family, and um, that was another thing. You know, when we were kids, we would, you know, Kemper killed coeds and when when i was when we were little my brother and i we most certainly were not college-age women so we were safe but the thing about mullen is he killed men he killed women he killed children uh he even killed a priest over in las gatas you know right outside his own confessional um you it was random and it was you just didn't know and he killed in different styles he actually his second victim he killed um, very similar he picked up a hitchhiker and, and stabbed her uh and then dismembered her body in a very similar way to the way that kemper killed so um yeah mullen was just That's all really over crazy. the map it was all in his head for very different reasons it's not um sort of how you think of you know serial killers and, and you know like they a have a certain target or rational yeah. he was just a he was just a yeah, just a like killer. a loose cannon. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. a killer. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Where, what, what uh, jail is he in now? Uh, he's in. Oh gosh, you just asked me that. I was oh. just there. I, I went and visited him not that long ago. Um, but Kemper's what? Kemper got transferred to like Oregon or something. Uh, right? No, Kemper's still in Vacaville. He's been oh, in okay. Vacaville, okay. yeah, for years and years and years. Um, Mule Creek. That's where where Mullen is. And strangely enough, um, Frazier was in. Um, Folsom for many many years and then he was transferred over to Mule Creek and I actually asked um, Mullen if he had run into to Frazier and I don't think I've ever told anyone this yet um, uh, and he said that he talked to Frazier a couple of times Frazier used to play frisbee with some other guy and he would while he's playing frisbee sort of walk over while he's still playing and and talk to Mullen and he did not know that that Frazier was Frazier. He didn't know that that he was also from Santa Cruz and and the killer of. He thought he had killed a dentist, but instead of an eye surgeon, he got it wrong. But um, until after Frazier committed suicide, which was not like 2009 or 2014, um, yeah, Frazier Frazier committed suicide. Yeah, very. I mean, the whole thing is. I mean. The 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 psychosphere of Santa Cruz at that time <laughs> yeah, must have been off the charts because they didn't know some of those people who were doing it right at least Kemper for for a while so they didn't oh, for know a long that. time yeah. yeah and you know they even investigated you know they thought that perhaps this could be one killer um, oh, and a lot of the public thought it you know it was one killer and and there was pressure on Peter Chang after Herbert Mullen was caught to say hey that's over we're done here everything's fine. There was a reporter in San Francisco. I forgot her name. She hosted a show on KQED um, on Saturdays, I think. Um, and she was really pressuring Peter Chang, like, hey, you're done. Why Why don't you let people off the hook, you know, and, and let them know that everyone's safe and it's okay. Uh, he wouldn't do it. And he was greatly justified in the long run, you know, after Kemper turns himself in in, in April of 73. Um but there, there was there was pressure there for for sure because some people thought there was there was one person, one person committing right. all these crimes. 
And Kemper's confessions are off the chart. Like he was, the thing is his IQ was so high, the different than other killers where his self-analysis was sophisticated, but super disturbing. Like he was. Yeah. And and he's very articulate. He's very, um, he reads people real well. So he's super friendly. You know, he knows how to read you real well. When he was 15 years old, most of your audience probably knows this, but uh, he was, um, he killed his grandparents and he was sent away to a Tascadero mental hospital. Of course, he's a huge kid. He looks like an, an adult, but he's in, in this hospital with, you know, rapists and all these sophisticated sort of criminals. Um, if that's what you want, if that's a word you want to use. But, um, and he always said, you know, what he learned there was if you're going to rape someone, you got to kill him because the Tascadero is full of rapists that got caught uh, because they let people live. And so, um, while he's in the Tascadero, you know, they test his IQ. He always thought he was dumb and it ends up, he ends up with a 131, I think is what it was. There's a, an image in the book somewhere. Um, I think it's in, actually in the index where it shows his first IQ test there. Um, and he ends up with a 131 and then of course it, it gets higher than that even. And so he was surprised as anyone to realize, wow, I'm actually smart. You know, I consider myself dumb all these years. Um, but he started picking up there and he started working in um, sort of the, the testing area where they would administer tests. And by some accounts, by his own accounts, he said that he had uh, memorized the tests. He told his sister that his sister in an interview said that uh, he had memorized that he said that he had memorized the test later in a parole hearing. He said, of course, I didn't memorize the tests, but, you know, who, who knows that. But then that's the nature of the book. You know, you hear these these different stories and especially with Kemper, you know, for me, the great value of telling it as a first person is that you get to hear um, people talking in their circumstances. um, What you got to look at what they have to to gain, what they have to lose. So Kemper, you can see Kemper's story change over years, depending on a circumstance. So, you know, when he's first caught, out and he turns himself in and not caught i should say he turns himself in in pueblo colorado uh guys from santa cruz fly out there they interview him and i always felt like those are those interviews are probably his most candid interviews well they they drive back which is a story in and of itself this drive back to santa cruz um, right. and why and why they did it right i mean whole, that's it, really right? interesting yeah. they're interviewing him the whole way writing down things public defender said uh, they had a tape recorder in the trunk and the guys that were on the trip said emerson we didn't have a tape recorder in the trunk but and they're also saying we couldn't get him to shut up when he was driving us up the wall but um they get him back to santa cruz then he's introduced to his public defender jim jackson uh and they start talking about an insanity defense well then kemper's story changes even more and suddenly now he's a cannibal and and other other things start coming out and then years later, when he starts having his parole hearings, then his stories start changing again. So uh, to me, the value of the book is you, you present all three stories and the audience needs to determine knowing what year is it? What's going on in society? What does Kemper have to lose or gain? What is going on with him? Who's around him? What's he being influenced by? And here's his here's each of those stories, because really, you know, and I have a problem with, with you know, with some nonfiction where especially something like this where Kemper's alone with a victim in his in his room 
nobody's there. The only, you know, maybe there's some CSI evidence that we could draw conclusions from or something, but he's the only one that can tell us the story. And if you're not going to quote him and you're just going to say what happened, then you're taking this authoritarian sort of point of point of view, which, which is fine for most authors and that's fine for most books. That's great. But for me, I, I had some trouble with it because I knew the source wasn't always reliable. And so I felt like, you know, this really needs to come straight from the lips. You know, it really needs to come. It's not me saying this happened, this happened, this happened. Right. It, the, let's hear from them. You know. The style of your book is outstanding. I really found it fascinating to read in that style. And you had all these first-person accounts of all these people. You had Chang, Comstock, some of these yeah. other policemen, your dad, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I think that just the impressions of what people saw during that time, the way you related it, made it a real oh. page turn for me. Yeah. Oh, so, neat. That's great to hear. Thank you. Yeah, I did. It was a lot of research, a lot of investigation, a lot of digging and digging. You know, I, I started with the Internet. And as soon as I started seeing discrepancies, I was like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble here. I really need to start making phone calls and, and talking because, um, you know, I, I learned from my first book, Bruiser Brody. I went to Wikipedia to, when I started. Well, I don't even remember if Wikipedia was around at that time, but. You know, I, I went to Wikipedia and there, all this information was incorrect. And I thought, God, nobody's editing. The, and, you know, it, this, this information. The editors are terrible on Wikipedia. Right. And, it's and not it, reliable. It might have used to have been, but it's not anymore. And, and we're feeding ourselves, you know, because people are using that as a source. So it's just constantly getting fed. And my big example of that is every documentary you ever see about Herbert Mullen, they say, oh, he was voted most likely to succeed in his as San Lorenzo Valley class of 1965. And I went to SLV. So I went and I looked at those yearbooks when I was in high school. And I said, oh, I'm going to go look up this guy that killed my dad's friend. I want to see you know, what he looked like because we didn't have the internet. Um, and there it is. Uh, there's Herbert Mullen and the thing and, and all these articles saying most likely to succeed. Well, you turn the page and... It sure isn't Herbert Mullen. I don't know what that guy that was voted most likely to succeed feels, but um, it wasn't Herbert Mullen. So I don't know how that story got picked up, but it just, we feed uh, each other. I mean, it just becomes into the cycle of misinformation. And that is disturbing. And, and for me, especially when a story like this, which is 50 years old now, the folks are passing away and the memory, the memories are disappearing and the, we're losing our first person um, people, you know, our sources are, are disappearing, you know, and they're going to be pretty much all gone in 20 years. So I felt like we need to capture this now because the accuracy is only going to get worse. So I felt like it was sort of a last ditch. People ask me, how long do you work on this book? I said, oh, I worked on it for 30 years. I've been collecting things. But you're really in earnest. I worked on it for about two years. But I already had boxes of newspapers and my dad and all these stories and, you know, dinners at, in third grade from with my friend Steve Schwanderlob, you know, the hearing stories from his parents. And it was just something that was just a, such a part of me that I I don't know. It just, it didn't feel, it didn't feel hard. That may sound strange. Did but. you have like any, I mean, you had a lot of interviews with people, 2020 ex-cops, prosecutors. Mm -hmm. Did they seem to really want to share the story? Did, did you find that to be the case? That's a great question. That's a really good question. So um, very mixed bag, 
very mixed bags. Uh, law enforcement, much more, much more into it. You know, they were open to talking about it. A lot of them sort of had been telling the same stories. So I needed to find a way to sort of ask different, like, what kind of shoes was he wearing? So that they're not working from the part of the brain that's telling a story and they're actually remembering. So once I kind of would get folks going, I could get some new, fresh information and, and, and remind them, hey, well, in the court, you know, it said something, testimony, it said something a little different. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was like that. So we got a lot of new, interesting information that way. Now, with the families and friends of the victims, again, real up and down. I always, in those cases, I wrote letters first. I didn't, I felt like a phone call would be a little bit of an ambush. So uh, I wrote, would write letters and let them respond to me if they wanted to. Um, and in some cases, it was, how dare you bring this up? And this is terrible. And I, you know, I get it. You know, I'm, I, I can't um, completely, I'm not with you. I haven't had that experience, but I can empathize. Um, that's fine. And in other cases, it's a story I, I tell quite a bit is um, they're excited to talk. You know, they say, uh, nobody, we see these documentaries and these um, film or documentaries and articles and books about the killers, and nobody's asking us about our our family member. Nobody's asking us about Mary, you know, Mary Guilfoyle's family said that to me, um, who was Mullen's second victim. Uh, nobody's ever asked us about Mary, and uh, they sent pictures. And now we have a story. Before, there was really only one or two pictures of Mary Guilfoyle all online or anything. Nobody knew anything about her. And now we have these stories because she was a real person, you know. And for me, that was like, you know, the, that was the the best part of the experience because it's it's a nightmare slogging through Kemper's description of his crime. That That's horrible. But yeah. when these um, – the families of these victims are saying, oh, my God, my family member is no longer a number or a statistic. You know, they're a real fleshed out person because a lot of them had very short lives. You know, they died young and they didn't have um, this rich, full experience of, of a full life. Um, but many of them had very interesting lives. So it, I, that, I felt very honored about that. I'm very touched about that. That was. Yeah, the you, yeah you talk about all the a lot of the victims as like yeah. full real humans. So I, credit I tried to that. get every single one of them. There's only one that I uh, um, and unfortunately it was uh, Jim's wife, Joan, Joan Genera, um, that I just don't have a good picture of. She's in the very last page of the book, but there's just I could not get a good picture of her. And. Well, it's, su it's supremely well-researched. It's a great read. I like the structure of it. Very unique. It's very different in the best way possible from other true crime books. Where's the best place for people to get this book, Emerson? Well, I'm down to 40 copies, you guys. So uh, murdercapitaloftheworld.com. Uh, go there. Uh, order the book there. Um, I had it in some bookstore, local bookstores, but I'm, I'm telling them that I'm sold out at this point. Um, I'm only limiting it to one copy per household. Um, it's going to sell out fast because um, things are happening. Um, I'll get a second printing out there eventually. Um, I just, you know, that's going to take some time. Uh, yeah, Murder Capital of the World. And, and if you have trouble with the website, don't, I mean, feel free to communicate with me. I'm open. I'll, I'm a person, me and my kids. I got two teenage daughters and we wrap them up and get them shipped out, you know, as soon as we can, you know, we're doing all the business end of it ourselves. You know, I had a pallet of books delivered to my garage. So it's all self done. Nice. nice. And that's emersonmurray.com is another. Oh yeah. Emerson Murray is my website. Yeah. Right. You can website. look at my weird paintings. Yeah. And the people, if they want to contact you, 
they can contact you through emersonmurray.com. Yep, 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 or okay. murdercapitaltheworld.com. Yeah, whatever awesome. works for you. Well, great job. Excellent book. Really one of the better true crime books. I read a lot of them. This is definitely in the top. Thank you very sure. much. So congratulations. Really well done. Super, just great research. Again, the author's name is Emerson Murray, and the title of the book, Murder Capital of the World, the Santa Cruz Community, looks back at the John Lindley Frazier, Herbert Mullen, and Edmund Kemper murder sprees of the early 1970s. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care. Stay there.